Blackwater, the Wagner Group, Executive Outcomes, the Flying Tigers, the Swiss Guard, the White Company, the Knights Templar, the Varangian Guard, Clercus of Sparta, Pythagoras the Spartan, Mentor of Rhodes, Socrates of Achaea. The list is endless. Mercenaries, guns for hire, soldiers of fortune, private military companies, private security contractors, dirty deeds, and not so dirt cheap. History is replete with privatized militaries. Call them what you want. They have been around for a very long time, and they are very likely not going away anytime soon. So you better get used to it, grow up, and accept it, or move to another planet. Because these days, in this world, folks, money trumps everything. And like it or not, wars are good, very good, for business. And pandemics, as if the only pandemic being hyped is an actual thing. Folks, epidemics, and pandemics have been around for as long as mankind. The only thing hurting anyone is the pandemic of the ignorant, the gullible, and the blindly obedient. Furthermore, history tells us that more people are enslaved and killed by such means as greed, corruption, oppression, and tyranny than by any other means. Money, profits, and propaganda. Call it psychological operations or call it psychological conditioning. You are being gaslit. So choose the red pill. Remove your blinders, all of them, and take a good sensory inventory of what you're being told and shown to believe. Because here we go. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Aconis, The Contractor's Life. Talking from the relatively insulated and bucolic rural foothills of northwestern Washington State, I'm your host, Scott Dresser. Life as a private security contractor in a hostile or a war-torn zone, or a non-permissive environment. It is a mixed bag of blessings. Some good, some not so good. All in all though, private security contracting is much the same as life. It is what you make it. The MENA region, or the Middle East, North Africa region. Lands of enchantment, lands of mystery, lands of the old ones and the ancient ones. Myths, Legends? Folklore? Maybe? If you believe what you read in the ancient and the holy texts, then you know that it all centered around what we refer to as the MENA region, and primarily around the Mediterranean. You probably also know that to every legend or myth, there is a base of at least some truth. All right, so that said, folks, let us pick up more or less where we left off in the previous episode. So we are in the city of Baghdad, at least the general surroundings of it, right? Baghdad, Iraq, VBC, Victory Base Complex. Now there are bases and fobs and outposts 
North and South, East and West, all over Iraq still at that time. Not, there's a few of them that have kind of mothballed or they're not used so much anymore. But for the most part, they're all still there. I just happened to be on BBC. My first time to Iraq. And I think, as I said in the previous episode, it was quite an eye-opener. But it was also very refreshing. Very refreshing to be playing by big boy rules and to work, be working with, for the most part, professionals. So, what was it like as a private security contractor, a civilian, in other words, working on the ground, boots on the ground, at, on, and around VBC during that time? Well, it wasn't quite as bad as it had been a year or two before that, or even years prior. But, like I've said before, we did have our share of incoming. And incoming is typically indirect fire, whether it's mortars or rockets. Um, it can be small arms fire or heavy weapons fire. So we had our share of that stuff. And there were the occasional booms, but not a lot of them. The, the ones that I was a part of, I've already mentioned in the previous episode. So to pick up with that, what it's like. I mean, so a daily thing uh, there on the ground on that particular project that I was a part of that was, uh, I think it was Camp Victory. If it wasn't Camp Victory, it was the one next to it. Anyway, it was, there's a, there was a group of, of camps up there that, that some of us know of that had special parameters, special missions, if you will. Uh, they weren't the only ones, but there were, there were two of them up there. And, uh, so the daily grind, if you will, uh, you know, you get up whenever you get up. We had to be uh, at our location or facility not later than 06 in the morning uh, because that's when the night shift got off. So the, we were working 12-hour shifts. And if I, I think I've mentioned this before, but that particular project, it was three on, one off. What I mean is three days, we worked three days, and then we got one day off. Conversely, the people working nights, they work three nights, they get a night off. Pretty sweet deal. If, you, if you're a private security contractor and you're used to the typical five, six, seven-day work week, three on, one off, that was pretty nice. <laughs> it was pretty sweet. Um, so, you know, you get up, uh, you do your thing, you get dressed, uh, either you, you, know, you showered and preened and primed and trimmed the night before, or you did it that morning. You'd, you'd uh, don your gear, uh, take whatever you needed with you that wasn't supplied when you got there. Uh, so we'd go eat breakfast. We'd jump in the, in the pickups and we'd drive to work. We'd get to this facility. Uh, we'd go in and we'd, we'd all group up in a small rally room that had all of our equipment and gear that we needed, everything from the pistols and the rifles, the magazines, the plate carriers, uh, the Kevlar helmets if you wanted. Uh, and, and along with our boss, the supervisor there, the, the, the camp manager, and uh, he'd provide us with any intel for that day that we might need to be aware of. Uh, we'd do a little oorah rally thing, pep cry, <laughs> and then we were off and running. Uh, get back on our vehicles, drive to our particular locations. Uh, some of us could walk to it. Uh, it just depended. So that was kind of a typical day. Um, whether it was working the towers or, or working that, that facility where people were held, um, it is, I guess, is a nice way of putting it. 
um, or if it was going out uh, with the Iraqis uh, while they went out and did their thing. Um, and they were typically looking for people, um, you know, and so that was, you know, aside from that, it's just other things. I mean, otherwise, it's kind of like you got the same things you got to do. You got to take care of your laundry. You got to make sure you're fed. Um, if you're a guy that likes to work out, you got to make sure you get time for your workout. If for some reason you couldn't get your workout uh, before or after work, there were, for the most part, ways and times and places you could do it, whether it was in the tower or in that holding facility or anywhere else. I mean, all you had to do was think outside the box and be creative. Uh, some friends of mine have referred to it as the special forces workouts, and there's all kinds of them. There's, there's no end to it. It's just it's a matter of being creative, being flexible, thinking outside the box, and getting that workout. Um, and in some manners, it can be a better workout than going to the gym. Sometimes it can um, if you do it right. It, it's amazing. And the thing that really, and to this day, surprises the heck out of me, um, I don't. I think I've touched on this before. Talking about workout, you used to go round and round about this with guys. That to have an effective workout, you need to be in the gym for one to two hours minimum. Long story short, come to find out, I think I mentioned this before. Uh, I wasn't the first one, but uh, I took a cue from the P90X fellow, the guy that created that system which uh, a lot of these so-called special forces workouts are based on, I think, or at least they have a lot of commonalities. But the primary thing that I'm driving at is that your workout is between 20 and 30 minutes. So an average of roughly 25 minutes. So make it 20 minutes, 25, 30, whatever it is. It's very intense. You have a lot of um, stations that you're going to get to. Um, and, and you're gonna and you've got the reps that you're gonna do you got it all laid up and one of the magic things behind it is that you never take more than 30 seconds break between any of the stations okay so the shorter that break the better but your break is never more than 30 seconds so if you need a sip of water if you need to spit your snooze if you need a puff on your cigarette a chug from your coffee whatever what if you got to catch your breath you got to stretch your muscles whatever your break is never more than 30 seconds and your workout is roughly 25 minutes it can go 30 20 whatever okay um but that was amazing the i was absolutely floored and to this day i'm still amazed that that work that that intensity works now for me i do it every other day and I've been asked a few times, every other day, I say, yeah, every other day. They say, without fail. I say, without fail. Well, okay, once in a great while, because I am human, I take an extra day off. But otherwise, it is every other day. So it's just like anything else in life, folks. And I've said this before, and you know it. It's the choices you make. you got to be focused. you got to be disciplined. And you got to be consistent. If you do that, you're probably going to gain what it is you're looking for whatever it is you're hoping to achieve you're probably going to attain it focus discipline and consistency okay so whether it's on the job or not so anyway so that so daily grind i mean that's kind of what we're talking about uh so when do you go shopping if you got to go shopping whether you want to get some snacks 
people while you're at work because they don't have the snacks you want. Maybe get tired of eating Cliff Bars. Maybe get tired of drinking the protein shakes. You know, this, that, one thing, another. Maybe get tired of eating the hard candy from that FBI agent sack of goodies. Whatever. Um, so on your day off, what do you do? Well, you go to the base PX. Uh, and there at VBC, there was, there was more than one, but th- there was one in particular was freaking huge. It may have been the only actual base PX there, but it was huge. It was like walking almost into a super Walmart. It had everything. So whatever you needed, if you couldn't find it in there, all the Haji shops outside somewhere on VBC would have what you're looking for. And in that rare, rare, rare instance, when you couldn't find what you were looking for, you could always call home and say, hey, honey, I'm looking for this. I really need it. Can you get it? Yes. And back then, I don't know about now, but through the entirety of my time contracting overseas, um, I got to say that the military postal system uh, worked wonderfully uh, in conjunction with the USPS. Um, you know, uh, a lot of us have issues with the USPS these days. Um, but back then, it worked beautifully. It was we didn't pay a lot of money. Uh, they got it to us quickly and they didn't hassle us about it. Uh, well, primarily because just. It was the time that we were in. There were still, we had the two surges um, that we did (coughs) starting right around 2010, 2011. And then we had that other one that came later. We had one before that as well, as I believe. But I'm just saying, it it was a wonderful thing. So you you go shopping. And if you do, you know, or you you go to the MWR, which is the Morale Welfare Recreation Center. And uh, on VBC, they had several of them. Um, And... So you could, you know, they were usually open 24 hours a day. Uh, but if you wanted to go during a time when things were happening, they had a schedule of events and they might be doing karaoke, uh, lip syncing. I mean, you just, you know, whatever you go in there and play billiards. Um, you know, they didn't serve liquor, but, uh, or alcohol, but you could other times sometimes get the sodas and the coffee and whatnot. Uh, and you'd see senior NCOs and officers in there. I mean, everybody went there. Uh, as the years rolled on, the MWR didn't become quite, wasn't quite as popular as it used to be. Um, but so for the daily grind, that, you know, I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about. Uh, you could call it wash, rinse, repeat at some point. Um, but yeah, that's what it was. Um, again, you know, what you sported or wore beyond the required necessities from footwear to headwear to eyewear to ear pro. I mean, that, you know, for the most part, again, depending on the project and the contract you're on, for the most part, most people didn't care as long as you did your job. Show up on time at least, do your job, and don't leave until, you're, until you've been relieved properly because you might have an end time, but if that dude or dudette doesn't show up on time, you can't just take off. You stay there until you've been relieved. And that's that happened a few times, maybe more than a few times, even with me. So um, private security overseas as a private security contractor is wholly different than private security here in the United States. Again, as I've said before, though, there are projects and there are contracts here in the United States that kind of sort of resemble and maybe even rival to some extent 
what we did overseas, but they're not the same. Okay, things aren't yet that out of control. Uh, it looks like we might be getting there soon, though. But uh, private security contractors, uh, as a, as a whole, um, are pretty professional, squared away people. Okay, uh, an awful lot of them hail from the military, and that's a good thing. As I've said before, uh, a military background or a solid uh, law enforcement professional background where you have a variety of disciplines that you've learned over the years and you've sought out other disciplines and, and gotten to know them and gotten good at them. All those things help because initially, as a private security contractor overseas, you didn't particularly have to be really good at an awful lot of things. Primarily, you had to be good at just shooting, moving, and communicating. As long as you could do that, that's primarily all they needed and wanted. Okay? And, uh, you know, I'm not being too tongue-in-cheek. I mean, I, that's mostly it. Because the medics were the medics. The shooters were the shooters. The drivers were the drivers. Okay? And, and all, the, just, all the, the various fields and positions within logistics were just that. You know, the commo people were the commo people. Now, as time goes on, uh, you still have projects that have specialized um, slots. But for the most part, as time got on, especially as we got closer right around 2015 leading up to it, and then from 2015 on, and you can look at the job solicitations. Uh, they want a lot more out of the people now. They want them to be more capable and be able to do more than just one or two things and, and do them well. And one of the things is knowing a second language. You don't have to be uh, well-versed in, that is, you don't have to be necessarily fluent in the language of the country you're going to. But they want, they want, they would like anyway, for you to at least have a basic knowledge of that language, at least a conversational level, okay, they would also like you to have, and depends on which part of the world you're talking about, first responder, first person on scene, you know, medical stuff. They would like you to have that kind of instructional training. Okay. So, you know, aside from being able to shoot really well, think clearly with a clear head and, and be able to discern very rapidly, I mean very rapidly, shoot, no shoot, okay, that is huge. A lot of people forget about that, the shoot-no-shoot shoot scenario. And there's plenty of drills and scenarios that some of us have gone, maybe a lot of us have gone through. Shoot-no-shoot. Shoot. <laughs> I mean, when, when, you, when that adrenaline is flowing, okay, the shoot-no-shoot no shoot is, is huge. Okay? You shoot the wrong person, it can, it can make everything else that went right, it can just ruin the whole day. Okay? Um, so... So private security contractors these days, um, they need to be a little bit more, uh, not diverse, but they need to be uh, have a little bit more in terms of skill set than they had previously. Um, that's not to say that they don't have the guy or the gal that's specifically the team medic, the guy or the gal that's the specifically the designated marksman. Okay. The guy or the gal that's the specific agent in charge or the close protection agent for, for the principal. That's not to say that, that those people aren't designated. But chances are, these days, 
because of the drawdown that began years ago, okay, the people out there typically, or at least they should be, hopefully, are more diversely skilled in what they're able to do and do well. Now, I still hear <laughs> that that's not the case, that the dumbing down of the uh, requirements uh, is similar in private security contracting as it is in the military. Now, my guess is, and I haven't heard this from the horse's mouth yet, but I'm working on getting it, is that my guess is that at the top levels, okay, at the diplomatic security part for like State Department and for some of the stuff that's still DOD centric, okay, that a lot of those guys and gals that are doing that are still top notch because what people used to complain about well, how do I get a job over there? I can't get in. I've applied 10,000 times and nobody ever responds to me. Well, okay. So maybe you're good at this. Maybe you know that. But nobody knows you. Nobody knows who you are. Okay. And let's, let's be honest about this for a moment, folks. Just think about it. It's not much different than what I have said to even clients. Okay. I want to work with known commodities. Ideally, I know them personally. I've worked with them. I've trained with them. But that's not a prerequisite. It's preferential, but it's not a prerequisite. What's a prerequisite is that somebody I know that I trust okay, can vouch for that person. Because I'm telling you, aside from the stupid things that people say and do on a daily basis okay, that can rankle the feathers of the client and their representatives, okay, you and I have got to know with a fair degree of certainty that this guy, this gal can do the job. And that if the shit hits the fan, which is ultimately what we're being paid for, okay, it's not what we're doing right now. It's what we might have to do when or if the shit hits the fan. Okay, that you and I want to know that that guy to our left and that gal to our right can do their job, okay, that they're not going to shoot us, they're not going to shoot the client, they're not going to choke and freeze out of fear and collapse to the ground, okay. We want to know that these people can actually do that, okay. That takes a lot of instruction. That takes a lot of training. And ultimately... It all comes together and fuses and bonds with experience. Time on the ground, time actually doing it. So whether it's an EP gig, I mean an actual real full-blown executive protection program, okay, not just a meet and greet, okay, or it's a true escort situation, or it's uh, you're, you're doing venue security, or site security, or any form of force protection, okay, whatever the discipline is that you're involved in, people just want to know, whether it's here in the States or outside the States, that the people involved know what they're doing, that they can actually do it. And don't get me wrong, because I'm sure there's lots of graduates out there of plenty of EP-type courses. And probably to this day, one of the biggest ones that I still occasionally hear about is ESI. Never did the ESI thing. I thought about it, 
because it, it was that white corporate culture, you know, soft skill kind of thing. And I'm going to tell you, I'm just saying, this has been my experience. Of all the people I've worked with over the years, where their claim to fame outside their military service was going to the ESI course, okay, if they had not truly been a verifiable, legitimate special operator with not only the schooling, but then the experience. And all they did was the ESI thing as their big claim to fame, aside from all the braggadocious bluffing that they do on the resume and the talking when they're sitting around and telling their horseshit war stories. I've only met one person who went through that ESI course that arguably, arguably, was worth what they were being paid for. Okay, so I'm not saying that there aren't plenty of graduates of ESI and other schools and courses like that that are worth what they're being paid for that should be on these projects. I'm just saying, as has been said before me, and it was told to me, that this, at least this is what it was told to me, and this was in uh, 2008, going through that EP course, okay, that I was doing in Moyak. This is not going to get you the job. This is, there's no guarantee you're going to get a job. This probably won't get it because there's a lot of guys out there doing it, looking for it, wanting to do it. And a lot of them have more skills and more experience. But this is a very good starting point. So it's not much different than what the point I've made before with all these people that go, well, I got a four-year degree in this, or I got a master's in that, or a PhD. It's like, okay, great. You have an awful lot of book knowledge and research material that you've done, but it's just that. You have been able to regurgitate very well what somebody else has wrote, what somebody else has done and told you about, and you're very good in that. So that's a great starting point. But until you put it together, with experience on the ground for years, okay, you're really barking up the wrong tree when you go out there and try to tell other people how it should be done, okay, because it's all white paper garbage as far as I'm concerned until and unless you've put in your time out there in the field putting into practice all this white paper stuff that you're talking about only to realize that a lot of times it just doesn't work. And when it does work, it doesn't work the way your white paper said it was supposed to work or should work. Just the way it happens. So how does that tie in with private security contracting overseas? And while I'm at it, I suppose, because in the previous episode, I said there was a difference between overseas and OCONUS. And there is. However, they are frequently used synonymously. And to some extent, they can mean the same thing. But OCONUS is quite literally just that. It's outside the continental United States. So anytime you go outside the contiguous 48 states of the United States of America, what people typically see when they look on a map, okay, that is technically OCONUS. So whether it's Canada, strictly speaking, Alaska, Mexico, the Caribbean, 
anywhere outside the continental U.S. is Oconus. Okay. Overseas is just that. Either across the Pacific or across the Atlantic, that's overseas. So they can be used interchangeably, but they are different. So even though this podcast is Oconus, <laughs> The Contractor's Life, it's almost exclusively overseas. Now, I did plenty of work here in the States as well. Still do. Um, because I hung up the, the gun, so to speak, as a, a, a former friend of mine who's up in Canada, uh, who was a, uh, I forget what they called it, but he was a student down here in America when we were in high school. Uh, but he's, he's back in Canada, but he, he asked me one day, however many years ago, have you hung up the guns? And, and at that time I had, I was thinking about it. Um, but so that, that, that technically is the difference between Oconus and overseas. But where I was going with that folks is that, um, Oconus or overseas, either way it is Oconus. Okay. So whether you're overseas or Oconus, you're Oconus. So there's nothing wrong in saying that. I'm just saying that there is distinctly, strictly speaking, a difference between Oconus and overseas. So uh, since I settled that, because I referenced it in the previous episode, I thought I'd better clarify that before it's too late. Because um, somebody's probably going to call me on that if they haven't already. Uh, so the next point is... I have referenced in previous episodes also about some of the stupid, I mean, just ultra stupid things that I've seen and heard as a private security guy here in the United States. And I still say private security contractor because since I began contracting overseas in 2007, I've only once been an employee. And that was for only like six months before I said, I've had enough of this crap. Since then, so, um, I don't know, somewhere around mid-2008, mid uh, late 2008, early 2009, I've been private security contractor, OCONUS, and here CONUS. Okay? In other words, here in the States, I operate under my own license. And if I need to operate in a different state, then I, uh, you know, some states allow you to to work in their state for one month or three months or six months, whatever it is, under your own under the auspices of your own private security firm. Others, you, they don't. It just depends on the state. So depending on all the particulars, I either do what I got to do to get registered and licensed in that state, or I just operate until my time's up and then I go back and then come back again if you know, when I can. But I'm just saying that's a private security contract. That's the way I've always operated. 1099 W9. Uh, and I, I've already hearkened on all the reasons why I think that makes a whole lot of sense. Okay. It just everything from being able to be selective and say yes or no to choosing the jobs that you want, uh, who you work with, uh, the equipment, the gear you do and don't use. And, and it really reduces the stress and the stupidity factors that you have to deal with. Uh, and I've mentioned before FEMA. Okay. Now I'm not picking on FEMA. I really am not because the four projects that I've been involved with, with FEMA projects here in the States have all been great projects. And the people at the FEMA level, aside from personal and differences and our politics aside, they were almost always professional, at least the administrative people, the management people, the people in charge of doing things and getting things done were always top notch, top shelf professionals. 
So got along with them swimmingly. Um, but it was almost always, again, the turds working on the ground. Okay, Now, they weren't all turds. Some of them were some good dudes. But almost all of them were just these high-strung, wannabe cops, wannabe military, um, Johnny Rambo stories. Uh, it just it got to a point, uh, one in particular, I think I mentioned also in the previous episode, <clears throat> where my wife says, I told you so about that opportunity with Barack Obama. Okay, so again, set the record straight. I am absolutely no fan of, Democrat, of the Democrat Party and certainly no fan of Barack Obama. However, on this FEMA project, some of you might know or remember it. It was the Oso landslide here in Washington State. Okay. And the private security firm that had that contract um, <clears throat> got it by default <clears throat> because I don't remember how they got it, but they got it. They subbed it out to at least one guy that I know who called me and subbed it out to me. Okay. And you know how that works. They shave off this much, and he shaves off that much. But anyway, it was enough for me. I said, yeah, okay, that's fine. But the long story short was, I get there, and within minutes of landing there, my first day on the job, I was working nights, which was fine with me. Uh, especially when I saw what was going on. I was like, oh, my God, this is FEMA? Well, it wasn't FEMA. It was, it was the idiots working for the security firm, providing security, to FEMA. Now, now they weren't all winners. There were, there were a few good people, and one or two of them actually turned out to be women. <laughs> okay, believe it or not, there were two very squared away women. Um, and I, 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 um, I'll just mention the, the first name of one of them was Peggy. The other gal, I don't remember her name, but they were great friends. Uh, but almost everybody else, the guys, I mean, looked like tactical SWAT officers on a mission from hell. And it was like, my God, guys, come on. It's not, it's not that high risk here. Okay. We were there at the fire department. We had, uh, because Barack, was, and then when, when we found out that Barack was probably going to come out there, we had Secret Service out there. We had cops out there, even when the Secret Service wasn't. Um, it's like, guys, tone it down. Okay. Because you got all these people from the communities, the surrounding communities that are coming in for help from the federal government. We're not here to intimidate them. We're here to keep the FEMA people and, and the other entities safe and secure and, and the properties and everything else. But we're not here to scare or intimidate the local people. I said, aside from it not being a high-risk scenario. So everybody just calm down a few notches. Take it down a few, okay? But a few minutes of arriving on the ground my first night. There were three FEMA managers at, at various ranks. They were, I think they were mostly from the East Coast, but they, I think they were one or two from another. Anyway, it was pretty obvious that to me, because as a squared away dude, whether you're in the military or private security contract or any other profession, after a time, if you're squared away, people know that. And I've said that before. You know when you meet somebody who's squared away. Someone who, whose head is firmly ratcheted down on their shoulders. Their feet are firmly planted on the ground. They, they're not all high on themselves. They're not all jacked up on, on all this white paper garbage that standard security model sells you and all the other media stuff that they sell you. It was a, they, I could tell they were relieved. 
All three of them came up and introduced themselves and shook my hand, and we all had a great conversation. All the other turds there on the ground were like, whoa, what the heck? What's going on here? Johnny on the spot. Johnny come lately. This guy's getting all the attention. Well, that's not what I was aiming to do, and that's not really what I'm trying to focus on. My point is that private security here in the United States is as... A good friend of mine by the name of Joey says, it's a joke. It really is. I can't tell you how many cleanups and how many times potential clients call me because the private security company that they've contracted with has totally screwed the pooch. It happens all the time. Normally, typically, when I don't get the project, it's because I outpriced myself. And that's fine. I don't care. I know that going in because I know where they're at. They want a professional, but they don't want to spend the money. Not all of them. Somewhere between a third and a half are okay with it. Or, you know, or they say, okay, fine, whatever. That, you know, we've been through this. We, we, want to, we want to keep this thing straight. So, I don't know, a couple weeks into this thing, two or three weeks into it, uh, we get word that Brock's coming out. Secret Service is sending their advanced team out. We'll probably see them. Um, I didn't see him until the morning before Barack arrived. Now, I sensed something, and, and some of you probably know what I'm talking about. You have that spider sense. You know when somebody's out there, somebody's watching you. You can't see them. Most of the time, you can't hear them, but you can sense them. And I just knew it all night long for two nights. There was somebody out there. Now, I, I almost, but I didn't. I almost, on a few occasions, went too far outside my AOR looking for this person. And then it's like, nah, calm down, Scott. We've got to keep our, our focus on, on our mission right here. Okay. Uh, Besides, you know, so anyway, long story short, the next morning, like I said, it was two nights. So this would be morning number three. These guys show up, come rolling in in two or three SUVs. And I think I've told this story before, so I won't go too much down it. Uh, but they get out, they and I, you know, I I challenge them, and you know, they tell me that they're businessmen down from Canada. They're here to check on this huge propane tank, and one thing or another, and and they wanted to talk to so and so, and well, do you have an appointment? This, that, and so we're going through this. Long story short, I hold them up long enough because it just, even though it's the Secret Service, and you would think they would have this stuff down really well, and they did a pretty good job. I'm. But something just told me something wasn't right about this. And I just didn't buy it. Three SUVs. I don't recall if they were all black or not, but they probably were. Okay. And they're all dressed in nice business casual dress. Anyway, he said, all right, gigs up. You got us. Introduced himself. We have a nice conversation. Asked me, tells me that the president's going to be in here tomorrow. I don't remember what time, uh, but it would be in the morning. Uh, probably around 9 a.m., something like that maybe 10, who knows. Uh, he's going to be coming through. He's going to take a tour and he's going to stop here and he's going to give it a little address. How would you like to ha have a meet and greet, shake his hand and have a photo op with him? I was like, wow, really? He goes, yeah. I said, you know, it's kind of like, you're shitting me. He goes, no, I'm serious. Wow. Um, that would be quite an honor. And then there was that brief pause and they're all kind of looking at me and it seemed like it took forever. Finally, I said, you know, I just don't agree with the man's politics. Another brief pause. Gotcha. <laughs> so they moved on. I moved on. Um, 
told my wife about it, and like I said, she was like, wow, Scott, I know what you're saying, and I know how you feel, but really, you had an opportunity to go meet the president and get a photograph with the president, and you said no. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, you just, I'm just, I guess where I'm going, folks, is that um, real people know other real people when they se- you can sense it. You just know it. Okay. So, that wasn't the only time I had run-ins and encounters with a lot of stupid stuff, a lot of stupid things going on. I mean, like, they would be freaked out. So, at night, we, we would have to have services come in. For example, like uh, the septic tank guys, uh, you know, for the porta johns They would come in with the trucks. And the FEMA dude would say, yeah, th- you know, I said, I, all I need to know is what I'm supposed to look for. Who are they? Um, uh, and, 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 you know, if they're off and if, and if that's them, are they authorized and what are they authorized to do and anything outside that they can't do? Right. Here you go. No problem. Guy rose up the dude I'm with standard security dude is freaking out. He has absolutely no idea what to ask or how to go about this. I step in, take over matter resolved five minutes in and out. They're gone. Everything's done. Next day, FEMA dude is happy. Everything's taken care of. So I'm just saying, even the little things, okay, and, and there's plenty of other, I mean, really dumb, stupid things that I can talk about that I'll bring up later <laughs> in the next episode. We're coming up toward the end of this one. So I got to put the wraps on this one soon. So uh, back to Iraq, though. Uh, again, the, the, the private security contractor, it was my experience that, you know, f- there there were a lot of people, relatively speaking, that probably should not have been there. Or they should have been in a different position, a different title, a different job, something. Uh, they shouldn't have been in private security, but they were. Here nor there. That's, that's life in the big leagues, right? So, with that said, folks, putting a wrap on this one, I want to thank you and thank everyone for taking time out of your day, your afternoon, or your evening to listen to me talk about private security contracting, mostly overseas, as well as some of my experiences as a private security contractor, again, mostly overseas. Thank you again to Cavic Cohen and Colin Perry, and thank you to Andres Rodriguez. Thank you to no end to my wife, for whom I owe immeasurable gratitude. Thank you to my children and all the folks, male and female, who have been and still are a part of my life. And remember, folks, it takes a team. The grass is not always greener on the other side. Be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. Stay humble, stay safe, and keep others safe by staying frosty. And until next time, keep it real. (laughs) 